Today on Against the Grain. Modern art has always been a battleground, and the highly influential Museum of Modern Art has been partisan since its inception. Architectural historian Patricio del Real discusses two differing political visions of modernism and modern architecture, one rooted in the left and associated with figures such as communist muralist Diego Rivera, and the other on the right, represented by the architect and fascist sympathizer Philip Johnson. He weighs in on the role of MoMA in promoting a view of modernism in Latin America, stripped of its radical politics and racial fusions, and radiating American power and hegemony. From the studios of KPFA in Berkeley, California, this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. I'm Sasha Lilly. By any measure, the Museum of Modern Art is one of the premier cultural institutions in the world, and MoMA has played an outsized role in promulgating a view of Latin American art and architecture in alignment with U.S. political and cultural interests. The museum, which was established by a trio of women in 1929, including Abby Aldrich Rockefeller, rapidly made its mark on cultural production in the Southern Hemisphere, a story which is explored in the book Constructing Latin America, Architecture, Politics, and Race at the Museum of Modern Art. Its author, Patricio del Real, is Associate Professor of History of Art and Architecture at Harvard and has himself worked for the Department of Architecture and Design at the Museum of Modern Art. Patricio, how significant is the ability of New York's Museum of Modern Art to influence cultural production far beyond the borders of the United States? That's a very important question, and it's something that um, one uh, kind of confronts. Um, you know, the Museum of Modern Art ha has had for a very long time in the, in the construction of, of modern culture uh, beyond its um, uh, geographical um, uh, limits, let's say, um, certainly in the United States, but also in New York. One can imagine, um, you know, uh, why a local institution and a local, you know, private institution uh, has had the ability to project uh, not only nationally uh, across the United States, but also internationally, certainly the impact that it has had in Latin America. This reminds me of a letter um, uh, in the archive of um, when MoMA was opening, I forget exactly which exhibition uh, at, in Mexico City, uh, Diego Rivera, who's you know, the famed uh, Mexican muralist painter, um, was um, basically um, arguing that this was just another tool of cultural imperialism you know, connected to, to Washington and to Wall Street. So that kind of uh, resonances of the activities of the museum, you know, beyond the national confines of the United States has always um, been seen with suspicion, um, particularly in Latin America because of the, you know, very complex political and economic histories that uh, the region has with the United States. Um, so yeah, so there's always, there was always that um, um, cloud, if you will, when we were moving across sort of the region. And, and also because after the whole, all the revelations, right, of the connections between uh, um, different um, Washington institutions and, you know, the cultural politics of MoMA, but also of, of other um, uh, cultural institutions in the United States, of course, people see these kind of projections um, with... Uh, um, ambivalence and, and also with uh, with distrust, uh, but of course one has to historicize this, right? It's, there's differences uh, between um, the museum projecting in uh, during the early post-war or during the war and the you know, museum projections uh, itself globally nowadays, right? where the um, I guess the cultural arena, the cultural market is, is much more competitive uh, than before. So in uh, 1932, the Museum of Modern Arts Department of Architecture and Design launched a path-breaking exhibition of the international style. 
Can you remind us what the international style of architecture was and its significance for the projection of a particular cultural politics and U.S. politics onto the wider world? So in 1932, um, the, um, the museum uh, sort of produces this exhibition, which actually the exhibition was called Modern Architecture International Exhibition, um, which uh, traveled across the United States uh, quite widely. Uh, widely. Um, and then concurrent with the exhibition, um, uh, Henry Russell Hitchcock, who was one of the former architecture historians uh, at, at the time, um, along with Philip Johnson, who was a very, very young um, uh, curator to be, let's put it that way, uh, and cultural entrepreneur, they produce this book called uh, The International Style. Um, and uh, it's a longer title, but the, the key is International Style. So the idea of the international style um, was, which you know, lived much longer than, uh, than the exhibition. So the life of the international style as, as a book um, is always intertwined with this MoMA exhibition. Um, so the idea was to present to the U.S. public sort of the latest sort of advancements in modern architecture uh, in Europe um, by sort of decoding a formal language, right, of uh, the use of particular materials, basically um, modern, what's called traditional, like core modern materials, which would be steel, reinforced concrete, and glass, um, that would allow us, or architects, modern architects, to produce a new kind of uh, a space, an open space that could connect interiors and exteriors, um, that could um, um, eradicate um, all references to history, so the historical styles, um, like you know, classical uh, styles or the Gothic styles, they were also um, uh, erased, and it would produce its own, let's see, aesthetics of pure forms, um, uh, uh, very uh, oh, new types of decoration that were not inspired by history. Um, so the decoration will be on the material itself or the way um, that um, technology was sort of crafted to produce these kind of new modern sort of objects that embodied a new ways of seeing, but also new ways of experiencing sort of the world and experiencing modernity. So um, what the international style then did, it focused on key sort of architects or architect genius like Le Corbusier, Miss van der Rohe, uh, J.P.P. Oud, um, and others to actually present them as a um, style, but uh, in, in, the, in the notion of a language, a language of forms that was synthetic and unitary to build a modern world. Um, now, what, the, uh, what many have argued is that what the international style and the modern architecture exhibition at MoMA, so in 1933, what um, uh, MoMA did, or Johnson and Hitchcock did, was to eliminate all the uh, political and social grounds of the uh, development of this architecture, or what you can call it modern architecture, Right. So evacuate or take away all its politics, which has to do with uh, social housing, uh, with work, uh, housing for workers. Uh, so it has a lot of social uh, content and it also was kind of connected to um, the Russian, um, what was happening in the Soviet Union at the time, you know, in the modern architecture of the Soviet Union. So these kind of new attempts to industrialize uh, countries and they just presented it as sort of um, as a reduced style with no social significance. Um, now we can counter that proposition. I would like to counter that proposition. Is that it's not necessarily that um, when this architecture that was produced in Europe in a particular social uh, and economic situation was uh, presented in the United States, when it gets represented in the United States, it is, it is precisely the, if you will, the you know, taking away of its political grounds, right, to present it as a um, elite project that becomes 
a new way of politicizing the international style. So the supposed you know, uh, erasure of the social grounds, particularly in Germany, um, uh, um, uh, where social issues were very, you know, very, very importantly addressed by, um, uh, by, this, by this type of architecture, uh, by representing the United States, that kind of erasure of politics becomes a political project. Um, um, so that's um, part of the, of the complexities of sort of uh, of this kind of new ways of uh, shaping the experience of modernity uh, in different countries. In this case, in the United States, which is basically what uh, what the international style and the Museum of Modern Art is trying to do. And precisely at this moment in time, because the both the book and the exhibition give birth to the Department of Architecture, which later will be the Department of Architecture and Design uh, at MoMA, and then all the projects to keep you know, proselytizing this type of uh, vision of the world. That, you know, that if one examines from the, uh, in the 30s, is, it, is it is an elite project. Because I mean, let's face it, who in, 19, who in 1932 has the ability right, to build, build for themselves a house, right? Um, so it is, it is incredibly an elite project, right? So as, you know, as MoMA is opening uh, the 1932 show, Modern Architecture, in, in the Rockefeller, uh, well, in, in, in Midtown, right, there are shanty towns in uh, Central Park. Uh, and Hoovervilles in, 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 in Central Park. Um, so, so I think one has to repoliticize re right, the activities of the museum in the United States and not simply say, well, they're just borrowing something and erasing you know, the politics, uh, the European politics, when in fact, by just reinserting it within the context of the United States, it's already a political, a political act. So then would you say, when we're talking about modernism, including modernist architecture, we have to think of that term as being contested ground, that there is a radical tradition within modernism, and then the kind of modernism that the Museum of Modern Art embraces is a version that in many ways is, by stripping away all this radical history, becomes in some sense a sort of stand-in to the power of transnational capital and the projection of power of the U.S. government. Um, I think in, in in the 30s, in the beginning, um, it, it's still very much it's still very much a gamble, right? And there are many sources one could see in the 30s. You know, who is building modern architecture, uh, right? It's, there is, you know, for example, we take um, the work in Germany, which is very much um, uh, supported by by local governments, um, right, by city governments to try to improve the lives of uh, the working class. Right, so you're talking about pre-Hitler, pre-Nazis. Yeah, we're talking about pre-Hitler. So from the 20s, for example, uh, we can um, take the work of, uh, uh, that is done in Frankfurt in, in 27. Or, for example, if we take the, uh, modern, the modernist villas by Le Corbusier, which is in the, also in the 20s, which are you know, very much um, uh, products of, of the elite, right? So there are many sources that are actually uh, fomenting the creation of new works of, mo of modern architecture. So it's how we assemble um, uh, that, uh, uh, those examples within the narrative, right? That becomes sort of a part of a cultural project, which, you know, which it is uh, underpinned uh, by, by a political uh, outlook. Uh, on the world. So when that emerges or travels, let's say, to the United States, uh, that takes a life of its own, right? But it's also alive, I would say, that it's, it's not only in the, in the, within the frames of, you know, of the grand uh, frames of, of politics, right, within the Depression, uh, for example, um, you know, and the social upheavals are occurring in the United States, I mean, serious um, uh, social upheavals are happening in the United States, um, but also has to do with the uh, uh, institutional um, survival of a Department of Architecture within a very young um, uh, Museum of Modern Art that is like, it is a project, you know, launched by three women in the midst of the depression. So there is, you know, 
the whole considerations of will this project survive. Um, so there's a lot of grand, large-scale politics, if you will, but also uh, localized or micro-politics within uh, the institution itself that are all sort of contesting and negotiating and trying to define what a modern culture in the United States uh, is from a very particular location like New York. There are many other projects. Um, and what is also fascinating is when this kind of project at MoMA keeps growing and MoMA, MoMA keeps um, uh, proselytizing this view how architecture culture in this case will react uh, in favor or against um, this, right, in relation to the very multiple um, uh, cultural centers that this country has. And this is actually a, quite a fascinating sort of story itself, right? It's not, um, I just focus on the Museum of Modern Art, um, but there are other cultural centers, you know, producing its own views of what modern culture uh, should be uh, in the United States. I'm speaking with architectural historian Patricio de Real, author of Constructing Latin America, Architecture, Politics, and Race at the Museum of Modern Art. I'm Sasha Lilly. This is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. So you've been describing the setting in which the Museum of Modern Art in the early 1930s, not long, in fact, after the museum was founded um, in 1929, partially by one of the matrons of the Rockefeller family, You've been describing how the Museum of Modern Art started shaping actively a notion of uh, modern art and architecture well beyond the borders of the U.S. And I wanted to ask you how we should understand the convergence of interests of uh, national governments and local elites and the Museum of Modern Art in perpetuating certain ideas about Latin America through its architecture and cultural production. So yeah, so the, the book, what the book tries to do is to uh, tell the story of this idea of uh, Latin America. Uh, and, uh, you know, I want to start by saying that, you know, Latin America is not an, a country, it's not a nation, right? It's this kind of fussy uh, geocultural uh, place or geography that is constantly being used um, it's almost also kind of, kind of a, a common sense uh, definition, right? You say Latin America and everybody goes, oh yeah, of course, Latin America. Um, but uh, what the book then tries to do is to examine the emergence of this notion, how it consolidates, right? Um, from basically from the 30s to 1955, when in 1955 there was this very important show, show called Latin American Architecture since 1945. So, and this kind of crystallizes this notion of a supposedly Latin American sort of architecture, as if that thing kind of exists in reality. And you can go to Latin America and see, oh yes, this is Latin American architecture, right? as a kind of this essentialist kind of character of the region. Um, so what the book does, then it dives uh, into the archive and starts to sort of tell this story of how this kind of category is um, shaped and reshaped, how it collapses, how it comes back through a series of projects, um, uh, principally through uh, architecture exhibitions, right? And it kind of assembles uh, these to uh, create this, um, to make manifest this, um, this category. Um, and one can see that there is a level of kind of contingency of historical contingency of possibilities that start to emerge because, for example, um, in 1939, um, Brazil opens a national pavilion in the New York World's Fair uh, that becomes sort of a sensation uh, in, in architectural terms, right? Because it actually continues a, a formal language of modernism that is sort of underpinned by a particular um, European architect, Le Corbusier, but it really reinterprets it and actually addresses many of the concerns that architects had at the time 
about this kind of uh, forms or this kind of language of modern architecture and makes it much more vibrant, um, much happier, if you will. It becomes this kind of uh, vibrant, uh, dynamic um, uh, modernism that really speaks to a future of architecture at a time when you know, the world is kind of collapsing because you know, we're, we will enter into, into the Second World War immediately. So this kind of revelation uh, starts to um, uh, shift sort of the narrative of what architectural modernism, which has been centered, of course, in the United States, in, in, in the United States itself and Europe, and suddenly this new country, you know, South, um, uh, in the South, kind of emerges as a revelation. This has to do with um, the cultural politics of the Brazilian government uh, at the time, which is the regime of Getulio Vargas, who was a dictator, you know, in kind of changing right, the perception of Brazil as a tropical nation, as a uh, nation that is not uh, modern, that is not industrial. So there's a very clear um, attempt, a construct, uh, constructed attempt to um, create these particular images Right, of modernity and of a, if you will say, and of a agreeable nation to court the political, but also very important, the financial um, uh, interests of, uh, of the United States. At this moment, um, Vargas and the Brazilian government wants very desperately to, um, to create or to establish a, a foundry, a, a steel foundry that is able to produce uh, high structural uh, steel, which Brazil doesn't have. Um, so he's courting the United States, but he's also courting Nazi Germany, right, um, to be able to have these kind of uh, technological transfers uh, to be able to build a steel mill, mill that eventually will actually be the Volta Redonda uh, steel mill that was actually um, produced in conjunction with the United States, and that was part of the deal. So all this is happening at the same time. So there's no coincidence, right, that when Brazil presents itself in New York, it is a steel building, right, of a technology, right, that is produced in the United States um, because it's actually high-grade structural steel, uh, right, but within the language of Brazilian, a new, a new modernism, which we call now Brazilian sort of modernism. So all of these kind of uh, political, political, social, and economic intersections and nation-building intersections, right, one can actually um, um, reveal by exploring sort of how modern architecture uh, is uh, a means to, an actual means to economic and technological development, but also a means to create a, a symbolic practice and a, you know, a symbolic condition of Brazil as a unified nation, which was part also of the Vargas government's um, um, policies, right? To bring all the different um, uh, states and all the different regional cultures under one national culture that will become, you know, in architecture, will certainly become this uh, type of Brazilian modernism that we will actually see consolidated in 1960, right, with the capital city of Brasilia, which, are, by the way, the two same architects, Lucio Costa and Oscar Niemeyer, who actually did the pavilion in 1939. So you see this very long, this kind of long sort of trajectory of architecture, but also of cultural politics. Well, and then what's the relationship between modernist architecture on the terrain of Latin America and race, especially a notion of whiteness in a place like Brazil or Mexico? So what the book tries to do is also to sort of argue for the intertwining of race, gender, and politics in the construction of these kind of cultural imaginaries through modern architecture, right? That we cannot really speak any longer about our architectural modernism without the considerations of race, the considerations of gender, and the consideration of politics, right? That um, these kind of forms are symbolically, but also socially charged, right? By these uh, pressing concerns and, the, and these uh, social um, structures. So it is 
I would argue, or the book tries to argue, is it's more than just a symbolism, right, of, 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 of works, right? Because um, in, in the end, you know, a, a, it's not any essential reading. It's not that a, a column can be sort of, uh, sort of uh, racialized in its own, in its, by its materiality, right? This, these are processes of, these are discursive practices that appear, you know, through um, uh, writings, through photographs, through arguments, um, but beyond kind of the, cons the symbolic construction, if you will, there's also the actual uh, processes of uh, spatial segregation, right, that um, allow or that architecture kind of produces replicating social um, uh, um, uh, segregations, right? For example, in Brazil, and this is something that was kind of argued or pinpointed at the time, a critique of Brazilian sort of modernism uh, was how Brazilian architects still reproduce, right, a segregated environment by, uh, that was the inheritance of slavery by producing two types of circulations, one for um, uh, the owners of apartments for the, uh, and, and the others for the service. Um, and you know this was pointed out already in the 1940s as people were looking at Brazilian architecture. So part of what the book tries to do is actually to recover those moments and to see how um, that they were only present at the time, but also how uh, they were actually erased and purposely erased, uh, so that we um, so that to create this kind of universal notion of modern of modernism of modern architecture which in fact this kind of universalizing uh, culture what presupposes a white heteronormative male subject right and so it so whiteness if you will uh, becomes uh, invisible but it's still there operating because also within the whole processes of modernization or modernity, if you, if you will, and many scholars have, have, have argued this, right, is, uh, is they're just ciphers for cultural whiteness. Um, and in, but what the book also tries to do is how to articulate, I guess in the case of Brazil, how, how to uh, understand also that these processes, right, uh, these racializing processes are happening in different parts of the world at the same time, and that Brazil has its own uh, dynamics of racialization, right? And how architecture also participates in that. And it's not, we cannot simply use um, concepts or cultural patterns that are, are developed in the United States or cultural theories that are developed in the United States and simply apply them to Latin America because the processes are, are simply different. Um, you know, the cultural, uh, cultural and racial dynamics um, in Brazil are not the same as that in, uh, as those in the, United, in the United States and certainly sort of in Mexico. Um, in Mexico, it becomes very, very clear uh, the level of sort of transformation, but also appropriation of indigenousness, if you will, by the central state. Um, uh, in the cultural projection and cultural construction of Mexico, if you see, if you one goes to the National University, for example, and sees how the articulation of, you know, of ancient traditions, there are multiple and incredibly diverse, get reduced to kind of one um, state-sponsored um, uh, cultural project uh, that is embodied, I mean, literally embodied, and you know, a lot of money was went, <laughs> went went into these projects to create this kind of image of a modern Mexico that supposedly pays attention to its um, its not its colonial past, but also to its indigenous past. Indeed, and in Mexico, it's very striking how Mexican nationalism, as put forward by the state, is deeply tied up with a sort of notion of the indigenous. I should say that this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. I'm Sasha Lilly. I'm speaking with Patricio Del Real. He is the author of Constructing Latin America, Architecture, Politics, and Race at the Museum of Modern Art. That's published by Yale University Press at againstthegrain.org. You can find a link to that book. He's Associate Professor of History of Art and Architecture at Harvard, and we're discussing the history of New York's Museum of Modern Art as a cultural weapon in Latin America in the interwar period and during the Cold War. Well, staying with Mexico, 
You mentioned the Mexican communist artist Diego Rivera, who had a small exhibition at the Museum of Modern Art in the early 1930s. I wonder if you could describe for us Rivera's relationship to modernism and even modernist architecture, as he had a, a kind of different kind of Pan-Americanism than that that was being projected partially through the Museum of Modern Art, which was socialist or communist in nature. Absolutely. And what it was kind of fascinating is that when we talk about Pan-Americanism, we have to be very careful on where do we, where are we located, uh, where is this Pan-Americanism located, because generally um, uh, Pan-Americanism, which one must um, differentiate from what scholars have called hemispheric thinking, right? Pan-Americanism is just a, primarily a tool uh, of U.S. politics that is actually projected towards Latin America, and there's you know there there are many sources of Pan-Americanism or, or the unity of uh, of uh, the hemisphere, if you will. And at this moment in time, in the early 1930s, was what I find very fascinating is that you know Diego Rivera um, uh, is actually proposing it's his own version of this kind of continental unity a version that is very much based on his artistic practice and his um, uh, uh, artistic um, foundations and sources. So his sources are um, the ancient civilizations, uh, certainly of, of, of Mexico and indigenous uh, craft. So he's actually uh, in his, um, uh, during his time and this you know, very difficult times of the depression, he's starting to, he proposed this, uh, this kind of unity or union, principally between Mexico and the United States, um, that, that he would want to project to the entire Latin America. Uh, but you know that's a different story um, about you know this this thing that we could call, um, uh, uh, barring uh, other prepositions, call this kind of Greater America, right? Where he identifies, I think, the very real in material and objective relationships of the historic but also economic relationships between the two countries. And he then argues, how can these two countries kind of come together, right, as the um, industrial north and the industrial north powerhouse, right, and an agricultural south to create a truly sort of American, in this case, you know, America's, not U.S., uh, culture. And, his, and at this moment in time, which is perhaps um, it's brief, but it's, uh, it has kind of for been forgotten by the scholarship. Uh, he is very much intended in, in using modern architecture as part and as a mechanism to actually create this kind of fusion between the industrial north and the agricultural south um, through a, the new technologies of reinforced concrete. But also, and we have to also remember that this is, this is a way of being in the world, of inhabiting the world that has to do with a particular kind of subjectivity, a subjectivity that accepts um, industrial change, um, but it's, it's one in the view from Rivera that accepts both conditions in the changes introduced by technology, but also the kind of traditions that are still very much present right, and active in modernity right, uh, of, of crafts that he then wants to kind of bring together. So what we're talking here is not, it's not really about modernity and tradition, but of, of two ways of understanding modernity. One, technological modernity, or if you want high technological modernity, and the other one, a, a localized techno technologies of craft that he kind of brings together. And what is actually um, fascinatingly fascinating for me as an architectural historian, right, is how he then brings this um, to an, um, an actual uh, way of living or an actual production in the houses that um, the architect and also muralist Juan O'Gorman did with and for him in Frida Kahlo, which are in Mexico City. And this kind of becomes, so he, um, they are performing and embodying this notion of sort of a, sort of a greater America, if you will, by engaging in uh, fomenting uh, reinforced concrete construction, but for example, also um, using the 
petate mats, for example, or crafted furnitures to furnishing the house. So this kind of a hybrid um, uh, um, cultural living, if you will, uh, this kind of one, one can also uh, call this kind of mestizo modernity that takes, you know, from, um, from all sources of a modern life and merge them together um, right, in a way of living, in a way, of course, that is very important to understand also is it is an aesthetic project. It's not simply a collection of anything goes. It is sort of an aesthetic eye, an aesthetic way of living in modernity that he's actually doing in, in Mexico City. Uh, and then he then, right, this is at the time that he's actually then also being invited to the United States to produce the great frescoes that he's being produced, uh, that he's produced. Um, this comes, of course, to a whole uh, uh, collision moment in the uh, Rockefeller Center um, uh, fresco that where he paints Lenin um, in it, and then basically he's paid for his services in full, and the fresco then is destroyed. Uh, the first act of, of I guess, um, uh, artistic or cultural vandalism, um, uh, one of the first of Western cultural vandalism, uh, is at least in New York. Uh, and then it is replaced where, with um, Giuseppe Maria Sert, who is actually quite a um, conservative uh, painter. And of course, that story of the destruction of Diego Rivera's mural brings us to the Rockefeller family who are crucial in the story of the Museum of Modern Art in New York, both to the founding of it and the fortunes of the museum. So let me ask you about the importance of the Rockefellers to this history. So, yes, we certainly um, should not forget the incredible influence that the Rockefeller family has had across um, the years. And, at MoMA, um, but also I want to underscore that this was the project of uh, three women, um, Abby Alders Rockefeller, who's very, of course a very important um, uh, um, character in the story of uh, MoMA, but also Lily Bliss and Mary Sullivan. So, you know, so it's important not to forget that it is three women who are leading um, this charge to create a modern art uh, uh, museum uh, during sort of the depression um, and uh, so this kind of agency and in, in, in the ability um, that um, and the force that these three great characters have in the institution itself. Um, what is interesting I think also is that then each one of these um, uh, characters brings a particular sort of thrust an interest right to uh, the Museum of Modern Art, and it is it is how these kind of interests are negotiated and embattled and actualized that becomes you know a fascinating story that of course is beyond what I'm trying to tell in this book. Uh, what what is what I kind of argue and well not argue because it's it's this is uh, quite uh, clear through uh, the history of the museum is that the Rockefeller interests in the museum intersect that of, of Latin America or their own interest in Latin America because of the great sort of, uh, economic interests that the Rockefellers have um, across Latin America and originally, you know, early on in Mexico and sort of, and Venezuela. Uh, I mean, the Rockefeller, uh, um, again, so it is that kind of conjunction of, of economic interests um, that actually brings this project of expanding or connections, establishing connections to Latin America. But also, uh, I think it's also because of the Rockefellers sort of insistence in, in the project that MoMA uh, becomes an American, in this case, a U.S. institution, right? That the project is to create a modern culture for an in the United States, um, and, and that any, any notion of, of cultural dependency with Europe, in this case, should be sort of reduced. And this kind of project 
to create an American institution uh, that services the United States uh, and, and the culture of the United States is completely intertwined right, with the political relations and economic relations that um, the Rockefellers, but also this country has with sort of Latin America. So in that case, for example, Latin America is kind of brought into the, into the fold um, immediately because of the historic relations between the United States and, you know, and the South, if you will. So that kind of, kind of starts, one starts to kind of connect the dots. For example, I'll give you a very clear example. For example, Abby Aldrich Rockefeller was not only involved with MoMA, but also in, involved in Colonial Williamsburg. And in one of the archival uh, letters that I found, you know, she's kind of writing, um, uh, I forget exactly who, to actually find um, object, colonial objects from Mexico so they actually can put in Colonial Williamsburg. Um, so there's already this kind of geo-imaginary right, uh, of uh, particular members of the Rockefeller family uh, that are very much thinking that it's not only the United States, it's a greater United States, if you will, one that certainly encompasses Mexico, so absolutely. Um, I mean, it, it, that's, you know, that we see with the, with the presence of Diego Rivera immediately in the Museum of Modern Art, you know, as you know, one of the most important living artists of the time. So, um, so that is, that kind of greater geography is always sort of playing uh, up and emerges at MoMA, but it has, but it's always also contest, contested, contested by many, uh, right? Uh, many that are actually arguing for a European lineage of art or certainly of modern architecture. And in this case, uh, architecture was always um, on the, um, on the back end, if you will, because you know there was uh, on the people who were leading the charging in architecture, which is basically Philip Johnson. He had no interest, uh, certainly in, in the beginning, in Latin America. Right? He was so he was all uh, all gun ho, if you will, all uh, really wanting to uh, bring a German affiliation of modern architecture. Uh, uh, he uh, bring uh, the affiliation of Mies van der Rohe, if you will, uh, to the United States. So for him, um, uh, Latin America was this kind of you know, backwards uh, place um, that he had kind of no interest in. Although very early on, it's actually quite fascinating, he has to contend with people in Mexico and in Brazil actually uh, competing with him to bring, for example, some exhibitions from Europe. So it's not that he was, you know, completely on the unknown. He, 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 he had to have dealings with uh, architects um, and cultural entrepreneurs in the Americas, but he certainly was you know, not um, one to celebrate um, those, um, uh, the, those geographies, if you will, at this particular moment in time. And I think it bears mentioning that Philip Johnson, who obviously went on to have an illustrious career as an architect, was the first director of the architecture department at the Museum of Modern Art, which he financed with family money. And he was, of course, a fascist sympathizer, eventually leaving MoMA to work for Governor Huey P. Long of Louisiana and radio demagogue and priest father Charles Coughlin. And as you write, he celebrated a kind of Eurocentric, even Nazi modernism against the kind of modernism that you have described in this program of the kind that Diego Rivera, someone who was on the opposite end of the political spectrum from him, explored in his own work. Uh, so absolutely, and this, this has been sort of an aspect of Johnson's sort of life that was kept secret um, for a long time, but it has come back um, to haunt him and to haunt um, MoMA, uh, correctly so, because it's, I think it's an important sort of aspect of, of the history. Um, you know, what is interesting about Johnson, who's a very, you know, very young um, cultural entrepreneur, let's call him, because he's not yet a curator, not yet an architect, you know, he's, trying, um, he's trying to uh, form himself or, or, or try to construct himself at this moment in time as, as an avant-garde persona, right? as a curator, but also as a public persona who's engaging 
modern culture, not only in architecture, uh, in high circles, but also, for example, in shelter journal. He's trying to sort of activate um, these kind of cultural spheres um, at the very elite, but also at a, you know, also at the kind of middle highbrow um, sort of culture of, of journalism um, in shelter journal. So, so it's quite fascinating that um, this kind of self-construction, right? In, in this self-construction, he then ex exposes, right, his political views, which, which are full of contradictions and full of, of paradoxes, right? But nonetheless, it is very clear that he is um, um, a philo-Nazi, right? He's, he's very much fascinated by the sense of order uh, that has been produced uh, under the Nazis uh, at the time, um, right? And he is is taken sort of by this, but this is also sort of fomented um, by other characters in this kind of play of developing a, a modern culture in the in the United States. And one of these uh, characters, which I find her incredibly fascinating because I think she's far more sophisticated than. And Philip Johnson, to tell the truth, is Helen Appleton Reed, all right, who is also very interested in what is happening in Mexico. So what we're starting to see at this moment in time is, is that this notion of cultural rebirth uh, among in during a particular time of you know a very chaotic uh, time, a time of extremes, it becomes very seductive uh, to many people. Um, and Appleton Reed, what's fascinating about her is that she's not only taken by what, it, the, what is happening culturally uh, in Germany, uh, but also what is happening culturally in Mexico. So she actually is able to, um, to connect these two kind of hyper-nationalisms. And we do tend to forget right, that because of the political stripes, if you will, of Rivera, um, one tends to sort of uh, uh, forget that the Mexico, the Mexico's national project is a hyper-nationalist project uh, also, and that Rivera participates in this hyper-nationalist kind of pro uh, uh, project. That, of course, is really different from the hyper-nationalist uh, uh, um, uh, and, and, and genocidal project uh, of Germany. But if we start looking more deeply into Mexican biopolitics at the time, we will see you know, that there are some very problematic aspects to it, but nonetheless. Um, so what I found it fascinating is that it is precisely at this moment in time when Johnson is crafting his own persona, right, that he has these kind of uh, philo-fascist tendency, more, more than tendencies, I mean, he is a fascist, um, and he's a Nazi. Uh, how far he would take his Nazism, well, you know, that uh, uh, is, uh, for us to sort of continue to discover um, that he it, and Rivera is there at MoMA at the same time that you, we have these two characters that are proposing two distinct different worldviews, but also two distinct creation, um, uh, views of what American culture should be that come together in this really, really small exhibition uh, uh, on this new space that is created at MoMA, which is called the Architecture Room, right? So, and because of different um, uh, conditions, um, the work of Diego Rivera, which is the, the, the murals, which what he's famous for, which are reproduced in color for the first time, are staged in um, a room that um, has the markings of a modernist kind of European room and they're kind of staged together and it's Philip Johnson who has to do this. Uh, there's no smoking gun of why he had to do it, to tell the truth, they didn't find anything, oh this is, you know, you have, no one said you have to do this, la 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 la, so, no, oh, sadly. Uh, so, but just by going to the archive and going to the, ev the photographic evidence that, um, that, that is left, because there's also very little, there's very little in, in relation to sort of uh, letters or whatnot, um, that I started to tease out actually how he then manages to uh, stage, you know, these two worlds, these, you know, Mexican mestizo modernity and his implications uh, of a, you know, a universal modernity 
in a space that is very much a la Miss Van der Rohe with some other furnishings by French furnishing by Le Corbusier and Charlotte Perriand and, and Generet, right, into this attempt to create this kind of universal modernity, which is nothing but, a, you know, again, a, 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 white, uh, a white modernism, right? Um, but it's also quite fascinating. This actually, and this kind of racialization is actually picked up by the shelter journals in the United States. By, uh, are they, uh, uh, so, it, you know, you, you, you find that this conversation, this, this conversation about race is actually happening uh, in the pages of journals. Uh, that uh, this was a racialized moment, a cultural moment. Um, so um, it has, so each one of these moves, um, again, we must right, reground them in this kind of um, historical moments uh, when race and gender and politics are very, very, very much present, right? And that when this, these um, ideas and concepts kind of dissolve or, or disappear, and better than dissolve, when they disappear later on, it is because a particular cultural construct, right, has won the day. And for further discussion of those many threads, you can find more in Constructing Latin America, Architecture, Politics, and Race at the Museum of Modern Art, published by Yale University Press. Patricio de Real, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Sasha, for the invitation. I very much appreciate it. Patricio de Real is Associate Professor of History of Art and Architecture at Harvard, and he himself worked for the Department of Architecture and Design at the Museum of Modern Art. You've been listening to Against the Grain. I'm Sasha Lilly. Thanks so much for listening, and please tune in again next time. Against the Grain is produced by Sasha Lilly and C.S. Song. Please visit us online at againstthegrain.org, where you'll find on-demand and downloadable audio and a way to sign up for our podcast. And you can check us out on Facebook at Against the Grain Radio or follow us on Twitter at Radio Against. Radio Against.